You're listening to Cindy's Voice, a podcast that aims to raise awareness and advocate for the enslaved in an effort to end sex trafficking and sexual exploitation. Together, we're a community that educates, equips, and empowers you to take action against modern-day slavery. Every episode, we bring you inspirational stories of survivors who have been through the ordeal of human trafficking and sexual assault. In addition, we interview key advocates in the anti-trafficking movement and have them share their comments on the detrimental effects of human trafficking in our society. Now, here is your host, Cindy. Welcome, welcome to Cindy's Voice Podcast. I am your host, Cindy Rivero, and with me today is Ana Cardona. She is a licensed clinical social worker and trauma therapist who has been working with trauma survivors since 1996. She is from Palm Beach County, and she is my awesome guest today, and she's going to talk to us regarding human trafficking, sexual exploitation, and sexual assault. She's going to help us understand how a victim reacts when assaulted. So stick around. As you all know, today is our very first episode, and I'm very happy about it, honestly. I am not a journalist, but it's been such an adventure since the very first step. But overall, I am happy and excited to bring you this project for your enjoyment. So let's get started. Some of us are familiarized with the term mother and slavery. And if you had, you belong to a very small group of people. So for all of those who never heard about that term, I'm going to tell you that this term has different definitions in different countries. Since we're streaming from Florida we're going to use the United States definition. And so, according to the Department of Homeland Security and the Blue Campaign Organization, which is a national public awareness campaign, human trafficking involves the use of force, fraud, or coercion to obtain some type of labor or commercial sex act. Every year, millions of men, women, and children are trafficked worldwide, including right here in the United States. It can happen in any community, and victims can be any age, race, gender, or nationality. Traffickers might use violence, manipulation, or false promises of well-paying jobs or romantic relationships to lure victims into trafficking situations. Language barriers fear of their traffickers and fear of law enforcement frequently keeps victims from seeking help making human trafficking a hidden crime and traffickers use force fraud or coercion to lure their victims and force them into labor or commercial sexual exploitation they look for people who are susceptible for a variety of reasons, including psychological or emotional vulnerabilities, economical hardship, or lack of a social safety net. The trauma caused by 
traffickers can be so deep that many may not identify themselves as victims or even ask for help, even when they are in public places. These crimes are happening everywhere in the world and can include any person regardless of age, socioeconomic background or location. As a result, each case can look very different, but some of the most commonly reported forms of modern slavery are sexual exploitation, labor exploitation, domestic servitude, forced marriage, forced criminality, and child trafficking and organ harvesting. So let's put our feet on the water and get to the bottom of what sexual exploitation. This is when someone is devised, coerced, or forced to take part in sexual activity. This could happen to prostituted persons on the street, brothels, or massage parlors, air, um, escort agencies, forced into pornography industry, or even people forced into marriage. There are so many forms of exploitation into which people can be trafficked and held in slavery, so here are some of the most common ones. So let's start with labor exploitation. Sometimes people are forced to work for little or no remuneration at all. So this is labor exploitation. Sometimes um, people use violence or intimidation. They accumulate your debt supposedly or retention or just identify papers, you know, as a threat of exposure for immigration authorities. Um, just to avoid to pay you as they already agree into once um, at the beginning. There is domestic servitude slavery and this arrangement uh, becomes exploitative when there are restrictions on the domestic workers movement. So they are being forced to work long hours for a little pay and sometimes they can also suffer some physical or even sexual abuse. When we talk about forced marriage this is when a person is put under pressure to just marry somebody. Easy, right? Well, they may be treated uh, with physical or even sexual violence or placed under emotional or psychological distress just to achieve their, uh, these aims. And you might be wondering, but, you know, what's the point of forcing somebody to marry somebody? Well, sometimes uh, what these people are looking for is just to gain access into the country or just simply get benefits. Um, access to benefits, especially here like um, visa status or a green card. There is also forced criminality and this is when somebody is forced to carry out a criminal activity through coercion or deception like child soldiers who are used for many military purposes. This affects both uh, males and females and children may use uh, for frontline combat which means that they are made to commit acts of violence and often these children are also sexually abused as well. And even though this type of practice is more prevalent in parts like Africa and Asia, it's worth to mention for the sake of what we are doing which is defining human trafficking overall. The other type of trafficking is the organ harvesting which includes removing part of a body, commonly the kidneys or liver, just to sell them as an illegal trade. 
organs can be taken in numerous ways. It can be traded, it can be um, through a vulnerable person who is treated, and that treatment may not exist, you know, like uh, with the victim's knowledge. When a person comes in for a surgery of, let's say, um, stomach, and then they get out, and months later, they find out that they're having a lot of health issues, and they find out that they don't have the liver. They never sign up for that, but they do remember going into surgery for a treatment. And usually these people find out about these crimes way later that when happen months months and even years after that happens and obviously the extortion which is a victim that might be uh, kidnapped from their family and their organs can be removed without their consent And now that we have learned the basics of human trafficking, let's have Ana Cardona, um, our first guest ever, explain to us how the brain reacts at the very moment a person finds itself in a trafficked or sexual assault situation. Ana, thank you so much for joining us, and I'm so happy to have you here with us. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Great. And a uh, majority of the sexual crimes uh, victims, honestly, I'm not a very big fan of the word victim, you know, but I, um, I'm not either. yeah, but for the sake of this conversation, we will use it and we will be using it, um, you know, like uh, same as the word prostitute, even though I don't like it. I'm a firm believer that there's not such a thing, but Anna, What happens to the brain in the exact moment when um, you are in danger? Mm, there's so many things, so many factors, right? So it, it also depends on the danger. So if it's a dangerous situation where someone you really trust, like let's say uh, a parent, guardian, someone who you have in, uh, a very close relationship with, when that person betrays your trust and you feel like you're in danger because they're about to do something to put your life at risk, then the brain responds in a way to protect you, right? So, and originally when the brain receives a, um, uh, a response of fear, uh, That the thought that your life is in danger, what ends up happening is that um, your brain automatically goes into a flight of uh, a fight or flight response, right? That's called the stress response. So normally, there we always talk about that. There's three parts of the brain. So the bottom part of your brain, what we call um, the reptilian brain, that's part of like your brain stem and your spinal cord, and that's responsible for your involuntary movements. So that's responsible when you breathe, when your heart is beating. You don't tell it to do those things. It just automatically does, and that's the function of your reptilian brain. And then you have the middle part of your brain, which we call the limbic system. And that limbic system is really what keeps you safe. The goal of that middle part is to keep you safe. Again, that's the limbic system. And then you have your cerebral cortex, your uh, prefrontal cortex. That, that keeps you present. That keeps you aware. That helps you control your, your hyper, um, your, what do you say, your uh, instincts, your impulsive behavior. 
Uh, so why I, I explain this is because sometimes people just don't understand that the brain is an organ and it's what its job is to keep you alive, to keep you safe, and to keep you present. So when you're in danger, what ends up happening is that that reptilian brain that I talked to you about before gets activated, right? Because now it says, oh, you're in danger. We have to get your body ready to either fight or flight. Right. So the, the limbic system is where the fight or flight really starts. And there is a part of the Olympic system in the middle part of your brain. It's called the amygdala. And the beautiful thing now lately is that for many years we talked about the amygdala. But I guess because there's so much information out there about trauma, everyone is talking about the amygdala. Now we have kids in schools that are talking about the amygdala. So that amygdala is like the alarm. When you experience a traumatic event, that amygdala activates and then it starts sending signals to your brain to say you're in danger so depending it's a lot of things that contribute to it but people really respond in three ways really you have fight you have light and you have freeze and then i mentioned freeze because it's not that common but it it, it, it can be common for people who um are so scared that they're frozen and they just follow whoever Whatever someone is doing to them, they kind of, people say they allow it to happen, but they're like frozen and they're just going with it, right? So um, when you're experiencing fight or flight, all the hormones get rushed through your body and you're either going to fight the person off, you're going to flight, either you're going to run literally or you're going to kind of like check out um, or you freeze and you just don't do anything, you don't respond. Um, so when that happens, your heart starts rushing, I mean running, your blood starts rushing to the middle part of your body, getting you ready to fight or flight. And then, you know, then you respond. Now the challenge here with uh, when we're talking about survivors um, is that sometimes they've been experiencing unsafe environments for a long period of time. So if it's chronic, if it's someone always putting you at risk, if it's always someone doing these things to you, after a while, the body doesn't respond like it originally did. So then you become kind of like numb to it and your brain gets numb to it. So there's a lot of different phases that happens to the body and especially to the brain when you're experiencing trauma from when it first happens to when it, it consistently happens throughout a span of like a month, six months, years, you know, it's just the body start, the brain just responds differently with time. Wow. Wow. There's a lot of information about uh, how it responds. So we cannot always say, okay, because this event happened, everybody's going to react this way. Yeah. And if it doesn't react, then it didn't happen, right? No, 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 no. That, you know, it, we talk about the brain and we talk about, we can say this happens and that happens and this happens. But we have to look at the person as a whole, right? So we can't just say A, B, and C is going to happen to everyone. No. We have to know what was that person's experience, life experience, prior to the traumatic event. You know, not only that person's experience, how is that person's parenting? Like, how is that person parented? You know, were there traumas that happened to that person's family members from generations. You know, we have to look at the whole picture when we're looking at uh, at trauma. We really have to take a holistic approach when we're working with trauma. I, get, I understand. And so, Anna, while there is no single profile for trafficking victims, 
trafficking occurs to adults and minors, and that happens in rural, suburban, and even urban communities across the country. There is many of the human trafficking um, that are from different socioeconomic backgrounds, uh, varied levels of education, and maybe documentary, or even they don't have some paper sometimes. As we just learned, traffickers um, target victims using tailored methods of recruitment and control them by finding an effective way of compelling that individual into forced labor or even commercial sex. So. Who are the traffickers? Uh, who are they picking? Like, how do they pick? Is there a way to, like, say, well, uh, they are more attractive to these specific personalities? Is something about the personality? Is something about how the people behave that made them, um, you know, like, like come for me per se? I know 100% that it's not like that, but it's it's sometimes it actually feels like like it's almost like they have a label, you know, like I can be trafficked. So look at me. How are they so? tenacious and so smart into like knowing who to go and in, in, in speech pretty much mm-hmm. oh, so again um, my focus always is on the um, the perpetrators the, the, the people um, who are quote unquote recruiting uh, people into sex trafficking um, you know it's really hard because a lot of those people really fall under the characteristics of anti-personality disorder and some people who really don't know much about that personality disorder really start thinking well anti-personality disorder means that you know they don't have a personality because they think anti-personality means they don't have personality but really anti-personality disorder are people who really are like sociopathic or psychopathic. Um, they really lack insight and, and some people even say a conscience. Um, they're very, very nice people on the outside. Um, you know, they're not they're not the scary people. You know, these are people who embrace you, who take you into their homes, who give you the shirt off their backs, who do a lot of wonderful things for you. But when they, they do that because they have a goal. Right? And their goal is to make sure that, that you do what they want you to do. So, you know, with that, we also have to look at some of the, the signs. Like, what? how do people with anti-personality disorder, what are some things that you can look at beyond the way they're presenting to you? You know, they seem like they're really nice, but, you know, um, they, they don't... They, they talk um, about situations in a different way. They really don't have much of a conscience. You talk about things that are really sad and they kind of like brush it off. Or you notice that the people who they were hanging out with aren't really the people that you really want to associate with. And I say this because a lot of people always say, I, I really, really fell in love with him prior to him asking me to, to go out and do the things that he asked me to do, right? So... If someone came to you and was really scary and saying, I want you to do this, I want you to do that, the first time you meet them, guess what? You're not going to do it. You're going to run. So they have to be nice. They have to be um, sweet. And really, a lot of them really are, are exhibiting um, uh, characteristics of people who have anti-person, uh, antisocial personality disorders. And why I mentioned that is because some people think, well, he was nice. He can't change. 
And the, the challenge with this is that when people have this personality disorder, they really can't change. They can modify the way they respond, but it takes a lot of therapy to really, people with that personality disorder, to take a step back to say, okay, let me, let me stop doing this behavior. It's very, very hard. So the likelihood of you changing that person is slim to none. And really, this is when you have to really look at yourself and say, what do I have to do to take care of myself? Because I have to take care of me. And if maybe later on, if that comes around, then you can address that person. Um, but for now, you have to really address yourself. Now, I think that what ends up happening is that, you know, these people with antisocial personality disorders, they look for people who experience a lot of trauma and who are seeking connectiveness, who are seeking a family because maybe they got kicked out of their family, they were abused at home, and their parents threw them out, or maybe uh, they uh, their sexuality, preferences of their sexuality made their family, you know, just uh, kick them out of the house. So these children and, and, and adults really are looking for connecting, and they know this. People with personality disorders, antisocial personality disorders, disorder sorry they know this so then they they target those people who are more at risk so you know in, in order for you to to really start looking at the way people interact with you you have to you have to educate yourself on narcissistic personality disorders and antisocial personality disorders you can look online there's a lot of like really easy information out there and you probably will end up finding a lot of characteristics of the people that are surrounding you if you're in the, if you're currently in, in this position. The, the judicial system that we have now is not set up to reform, right? It's set up to to um, to punish and then release. Yes. So they think they're thinking more that the punishment is going to change people. But when you have somebody who has an anti-personality disorder, that punishment can actually fuel that behavior. So they'll sit there and they'll wait the three years, but then they come out, there has been no no uh, remorse because people with anti-social personality disorders, they don't have remorse. If they really do, only, they only have remorse when they're caught doing something bad. So, you know, like if they're going to put someone and start prostituting them, they're going to say, they're going to start trafficking them. They're going to say, they don't have um, a conscience to say, oh, you know what, I'm forcing this person to traffic, you know, to sell their body. I should feel bad about that. They don't feel bad about that. They only feel bad if they get caught doing it. Then they're like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. But it's not because of the other person. It's because they don't want to face that consequence. So people get that confused and they start thinking that that person has a conscience and cares about them because then the victim or the survivor, um, they think that they're feeling remorse for them and they're not. So there's this cycle that happens, you know, and that's why people end up going back and going back and going back and to say hi Tom. and then they're like okay i'm not going back anymore or unfortunately they don't make it you know yeah yeah definitely yeah, yeah, yeah. and that's an area that we definitely need to improve we as florida because we're streaming from florida people if you don't know but um not only florida is the rest of the states and so many countries you know like we're still like lacking on that specific um yes. uh, uh department per se 
and so basically Anna victims can be men or women adult or children and foreign or nationals or even US citizens trafficking is a crime that cuts across race nationality gender age and social uh, socioeconomic background so Anna we know that victims of human trafficking almost never ever self-identify as victims of of a crime so usually they don't go and ask for help how can this be a normal person will think if something happens to you but you cannot ask for her for the help right at the moment that is occurring then you go to the police right after right so why do victims of this type of crime and with this type of crime uh, trauma they don't go ahead and ask for 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 help when they're outside in public per se you know you can be trafficked inside and everything but once you are outside if you have the chance why are they um, not running to uh, requesting you know help from people can you explain that part of that part of the brain mechanism yeah so it's that survival right so this is how you have to understand it is not at that moment again they didn't just be at that moment this has been a lot of grooming that's been happening this has been a lot of um even even if it's a uh a not a, it's a negative attachment um it's not helpful this attachment it's an attachment right so some people feel attached to the people who are trafficking them so they feel a sense of responsibility then there's also this other part where if you're told many times especially if it's a more violent situation where they're told if you say anything i'm going to kill you or maybe they're not alone but they have a couple of friends who are part of their group who are out there and uh, being trafficked and, and they they will probably think you know if i leave what's going to happen to these two you know, or these three or these other people. Um, if I leave, what's going to happen to my family? Um, and sometimes you're just so terrified that you're, again, remember I talked about fight, flight, or freeze? People are just going through it and they're just dissociated, you know, dissociated. The stuff that they have to put their bodies through um, is just enough for you just not even to be connected and you're just going through the motions and people don't understand that because unless you experience it you don't know what that is but when you experience you know exactly what it is to be so checked out that even sometimes days fly by and you don't even know what you did because the trauma is just so embedded in your brain and it's just it just checks you out you know so yes in, the, in hindsight we can i mean and from the outside looking in we can say, but you were just a target. You know, you were just jumping on a plane. You were just, you know, uh, talking to someone in the corner that your person wasn't around. Why didn't you run? It's this mentality of like you're trapped. And until something sometimes catastrophic happens to you or your body can't take it anymore and then you start waking up from it and you want to get out, really is hard. It's really hard for us to tell somebody they should have gotten out because the brain, it does everything to protect you, even if it's to check out during the most horrific times. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. It's, and as you said, um, it's a survival mechanism. It it's something it that we don't plan to do it. We're not thinking about doing it. It just happens when it happens because we need we need it, right? Yeah. Okay. So um, what if a trafficked person consents? This is something that I have been asked so many times for the last at least three years. Um, yes. Men who buy sex have 
have been asked by police officers and some specialists why did they pay for the sex you know why did they buy that moment that hour that half hour and some of them had answered they did it because she consent to it they ignore as many of us that they have no other choice but to smile and say yes because they are threatened you know like they're forced to do it so can you can you educate us about this consent part when it's sexual exploitation so we have the johns or the buyers how we usually call it so we're going to start like inserting you know like throwing these small little terms to everybody so we get familiar uh-huh. yes, throughout the, the whole season so what happens when the johns when the buyer says like well she consented i asked her like hey do you like it are you liking what you and she said yes and smile and everything how can we explain this to regular people even though she's smiling and she's being pleasant and she's being lovely you are raping somebody so there's two parts here right we're talking about the buyer and we're talking about the survivor right so the buyer um there's so many different components there there's so many different components i mean there's so many different things that could be contributing to a person wanting to go out and buy sex from a, so, for someone and there, there's a lot of guilt that's associated with it even if sometimes it's subconscious guilt right so the guilt of having to go outside maybe outside of the marriage outside of a relationship or even just leaving and feeling like I, got, I have to buy sex so when someone says yes I will do it then they're like oh good so now I have consent and then that's really just satisfying their need Right? They have this need to have sex. So when someone says yes, they feel like, okay, I'm off the hook because she says yes, I'm going to pay for this and everything is going to be good. I'm not guilty. I'm not, not guilty. That's not a crime. She agreed. Yes, yes. And I'm not guilty, exactly. They're not understanding what's really happening to that person because if they did, a lot of them wouldn't do it. Um, and if they... And they, they do think about it, they think about it afterwards. And then there's always been, like, I've been working, I had worked with um, men who, um, they do this with, um, when they, the buyers, um, especially when they felt like maybe it was rape, but they didn't know, but they just did it anyway. And then afterwards, the guilt that they have to live with usually makes them seek therapy because it's really, it, it really interferes with them. So we have uh, some people, some buyers that respond that way, but it really, at that moment, it's pure testosterone, adrenaline, getting it done. Their focus is of uh, the release, the focus is of having power over this person. And then once that is satisfied, they just totally disconnect um, from um, the, the, the victim and they you know, go on their way. But because the victim says, okay, they feel like they're off the hook. Now, if the person saying it's okay, that's another situation, right? So the person that's saying it's okay, is really okay because they have to survive because they have been told that they have to do this. And if they don't do this, they have to face consequences. Whatever consequences it is. And they range, right? They can be monetary you know, monetary consequences all the way to like physical abuse, right? Um, and even like threats of, of death. So, you know, some people say, well, they're only threatened to take your money. They're only threatened to do these things that, you know, they aren't going to harm you. Yeah, but people, I mean, that's significant enough, especially if they're using that money to take care of themselves, their families. It's just going to make them want to stay um, and continue um, doing what they're doing. Yeah, continue to be abused. Um, it's not that they want to, but maybe they no. don't have any other option. And no one wants to be not. abused. Absolutely, like, no one Never. ever. 
And in this point, I really want to highlight that it's very important just to know that the consent of the traffic person becomes irrelevant whether any of the means of trafficking are used. So if a child, that child cannot consent ever, 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 it doesn't matter what she says and everything. If she is a minor, she is not consenting. So that is automatically human trafficking. And so you talk about trauma bonding. Um, earlier can you define us you just like brush it out a little bit and it was very interested and it actually like interests me in the way that you were saying that some of the victims when they run away even out of the danger for you know obviously they're sick and you know a better life and just to not be in danger they actually feel guilty about the people they are leaving behind in the positions that they were you know like they don't want to be um beaten or you know drug because some people like actually being forced to do this and they use uh drugs to actually force a person make that addicted so you need it and you keep complying with it and so it's like a circle but um so there's two trauma bonding it looks like one is with you and the abuser and the other one looks like with when you are with other victims and you escape can you explain a little bit of both please mm-hmm. oh so when again you know originally when we experience a traumatic event our brain gets fired up and then you know it just tells you fight or flight or freeze but it has that response right and then people if you had a um if that was like your first traumatic event the likelihood of you running from that and keeping yourself safe is pretty high but if you have experienced a lot of abuse and neglect you have um maybe some attachment issues and then you experience like i said before when it's your primary people your mother your father the people who are supposed to keep you safe those people when those people violate you and make you feel unsafe you have this this dynamic happens where you you, you either fight, fight, or freeze. You, you go through that, that, that uh, situation, but you also start feeling like it's your fault. So that's why you start blaming yourself for the abuse because they have been telling you it is your fault, right? So an example of this would be, you know, um, I was just thinking about a, a victim I worked with, uh, a survivor, I'm sorry, a survivor I worked with who um, at the age of 13, the mother uh, brought in uh, a, a, a boyfriend into the home. And from the age of 13 to the age of 18, this child was sexually assaulted by the by the boyfriend. And the mother acted like she didn't know. So when she told the mother, the mother said it was her fault because she was trying to take you know, the boyfriend away from the mother. So right there, this is a child seeking safety from her primary, which is her mother, and her primary couldn't provide that safety. So that, that primary not only did not provide that safety, but then started blaming her. So then she internalizes the blame and says, this is my fault. It is my fault. It is my fault. And then what happens is that then that person wants to be closer to the person who is abusing them. So they, this child continued to stay in the house with the boyfriend and the mother um, and subjecting herself to that until the time that she got just so fed up with everything she got up and she left. But that, that, dynamic happens especially when it comes to someone they're supposed to be feeling safe with and they get blamed for for the abuse they end up trying to it's almost like trying to prove to someone that it's not their fault but thinking it is their fault it's a very very challenging dynamic that happens there 
So those are the two kind of areas that I hope I This is incredible, Anna. The brain is very mysterious and very complex, right? Well, to finish, I would love to talk about the difference between a trafficker and a pimp. And this is very important, so please listen carefully. The difference between a trafficker and a pimp is nothing. Absolutely nothing. A pimp is another name for a trafficker. A trafficker or a pimp is is a person, any person, who causes an adult by using force, fraud, or coercion, or any minor to engage in commercial sex in order to profit from the exploitation of that individual. And remember, the rampant use of digital technology, such as the internet, greatly facilitates sex trafficking. On internet, you don't have to show your identity online. So that empowers traffickers to recruit or sell victims. Graphic images of women and children engaged in sexual acts can be easily dismissed and seen over the internet nowadays. Traffickers may employ the internet for advertising, marketing to those interested in marketing, in making pornography. In addition, social media sites such as Facebook, TikTok, and Instagram have been used as a mean for facilitating trafficking by connecting and grooming potential victims. Thanks for joining us this week on Cindy's Voice. If you like what you're listening to, like our YouTube channel, Cindy's Voice Podcast, and give us a five-star review. This means everything to us. Follow us on Instagram at Cindy V. Rivero to receive updates on our latest episode. See you in our next episode. Till then, have a great week. the end of the first episode of Cindy's Voice Podcast. Thank you for listening and thank you to our guest Ana Cardona for joining me today and for educating us all about how the mind works when trauma shows up. She will be joining us again soon. Connect with us at Cindy's Voice Podcast on Instagram and Facebook or go to our website cindysvoice.org. And don't forget to sign up for our newsletter to receive updates for our latest episodes. Take good care of yourself and see you in the next episode. We're going to bring you a very special guest. Her name is Katerina. She's a child trafficking and sexual assault leader survivor. You don't want to miss her. So thank you for listening to the Cindy's Voice podcast. Have a great week.